Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Senior Lecturer at Macquarie University, Tim Doyle. into this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So really pleased to get Tim on for this episode because Tim has enabled me to dive deep into his experience and knowledge to discuss some things that haven't really been discussed in the podcast before. So his work in the military um, is a really interesting piece that we chat about in this episode. Um, The impact that his research and his work is having um, on the military side of things is is really interesting. Plus the work he did in pro sport with his PhD student Daniel Glassbrook over at the South Sydney Rabbitohs in the NRL. So we discuss um, load monitoring from a military point of view and then over into the elite sport um, arena and what we're actually collecting with GPS and it, uh, with GPS technology and potential areas that we're missing. And that leads us on to discussing some work that he's doing with inertial sensors uh, with Daniel's uh, PhD at South. So that leads on to probably 20 minutes of, of really interesting chat around inertial sensors, what, what additional information they're giving us and why they may, may be a potential solution for the gaps that GPS and G- GPS alone may be leaving. So really interesting chat with Tim, which I'm sure you love and as always would love your feedback on this episode. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, I and mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Tim Doyle. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning, I had the pleasure in speaking to Tim Doyle. So welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself, um, previous positions, education-wise, and what you're currently doing. Yeah, sure, no worries. I uh, have moved around quite a bit, so hopefully I don't lose you um, with this, and I'll, I'll try and make it... Uh, not too convoluted, but uh, I'm originally from Brisbane in Queensland, Australia, which is where I started my uh, university studies at the University of Queensland. Um, then from there, I moved over to the States and I did my Master's of Science at Ball State University, um, which I was pretty fortunate to spend some time there. In particular, I worked there with Rob Newton, who I'm sure um, a lot of your listeners would know and met some, some good people there and made some good contacts. Um, from there, I was very um, fortunate that uh, independently I was looking to take up a PhD position at Edith Cowan University. Uh, and at the same time, um, which I didn't know, Rob was similarly looking to move to ECU uh, in the position that he's had there now uh, for a very long time. So when that became known to, to me and to everyone, um, it meant that I was able to continue working with, with Rob on my PhD at Edith Cowan University over in Perth, Western Australia. Um, and that was where I, I finished my, uh, my studies, uh, which was in 2006, I, I think I graduated from my PhD. Um, from there, I worked for a short while at Notre Dame University in Perth and then moved to uh, University of Western Australia in a, in a research role. And in that role, I was doing some sports, res- uh, some sports injury prevention with Community Australian Football. Uh, we had a, a successful project there where we reduced knee and lower limb injuries by um, implementing a, a pretty simple warm-up program um, or injury prevention program during their warm-up time. Um, after that, I moved to Melbourne uh, in Victoria, Australia, and had a short uh, stint at RMIT as an academic. Uh, and then a, an opportunity came up to work with what was then called the Defence Science Technology Organisation, uh, which is now the Defence Science Technology Group, which is the uh, S&T arm of the Australian Department of Defence. And I worked there for about five years, uh, and that's shaped quite a bit the kind of work that I do. Uh, and then uh, about three and a half years ago, I moved to the position that I'm in now at Macquarie University in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia, as a senior lecturer in the Department of Health Professions. Uh, and in that role, uh, it's a you know, traditional academic role, so I'm, I'm teaching um, undergraduate biomechanics and supervising postgraduate students and continuing research in that defence uh, military area as well as uh, high performance sport. So, in a nutshell, that's uh, what I've done up to this point, and you know, a lot of those things have helped shape where I am now. Excellent. So, in terms of the military stuff, I don't think I've ever had anyone on the podcast who's been involved in the military. I think I've tried, but been unsuccessful. Um, just want to talk to a little bit about that that work that you were doing with the military and how that's kind of continued on to. Um, into the research stuff that you are doing currently at Macquarie? Yeah, so it was a really interesting five-year period that I had there. And when um, when I saw the role come up and, and be advertised, it was immediately appealing to me because of, uh, one, because of the applied nature of it, 
and um, and the understanding that the work that you could do could have real impact in a population that really we should be trying to to help as much as we can because you know obviously the the benefits that, that we get from our from our military um, but at the same time uh, you know as you know really what you just alluded to people don't really know what's going on because it's the kind of research that's that's done uh, in a very low-key way. While you can publish, and I, I have published and continuing to publish from that area, it's not one of your key metrics as it is for a, a normal academic, and so there's still a lot of the work that's done that is not reported and, and not you know, um, spoken about, not so much that it's you know completely secretive, it's just unnecessary to do that. It's very you know client-focused, as we would say, with our clients being... Um, in Australia, the Army, Navy, and Air Force. Um, the the first main project that I had, and and the main reason that, that I was hired, and there was a a number of people hired during the time um, that that I was offered a position, it was to look at what we call physical employment standards in the Army, Navy, and Air Force, mostly the Army at, at the time that I started, and that was to use sports science um, techniques, I guess and the sports science background that I had and the others in the team had to quantify these roles that Army personnel were undertaking so that they could effectively recruit and train people for these roles. So not just be speculative in terms of what's required to do the roles. So, you know, you've seen the movies and the TV shows, you get in there and you do push-ups and chin-ups and run really hard and you know, the people that make it to the end are the ones that, you know, get um, get the job. They wanted to take a, a more scientific approach so that they could actually say, well, for this particular role, the physical requirements are X, Y, and Z, and it's been quantified uh, and, and validated in a scientific manner. And uh, as I said, the two purposes for that is to recruit people but also to, retra- uh, to train people for those roles. So that's what started um, the or that sort of the start of the research that I was doing with defence uh, during th- that period of time, um, but then it became uh, you know as I got to know other people and other people got to know me, it's very relationship driven. So I had other people then asking uh, and seeing you know the benefit that DST DSTG could provide to uh, to different areas of, of defence. You then start getting asked to help out with. Um, Yes, similar, um, I guess, application of your sports science to areas which previously had um, had not had that benefit. So you know, using you know the right tools for the right job in terms of identifying what uh, you know physical benefits you can you can, you can give to a particular unit, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, what's DSTG, Tim? Um, so sorry, yeah, it's uh, it's Defence Science Technology Group, which is what they changed um, their, their name to a few years ago. So it used to be Defence Science Technology Organisation, and now it's a group, and sometimes it's, it's um, re-added to DST. I suppose that's the other thing you need to be comfortable with when you work in that environment is is acronyms. Um, and, <laughs> and quite often you know what the acronym is or means, but you don't know what it stands for, um, and yeah, often okay. there's more than one. So, yeah, apologise for that. No, that's fine, mate. No worries. So in terms of the, the work that you were doing, was, was load management involved in the research and the work that you were doing with the def- uh, military and defence? 
Um, no, for the time that I was there, it wasn't. It is okay. now, and there are other researchers, not me, that are that are doing that. I've certainly had some of those conversations with uh, people around, um, you know, around load management, and partly uh, I think it's because the science, um, and that was you know three and a half years ago that I left defence, and I guess it's an indication of how quickly the science technology has moved. Is you know all those many years ago, not many really. We weren't talking about load as much or in the same way that we are now. There wasn't necessarily the different ways to measure it that we have now. We were using your GPS units that are used in professional sport. We were using those for other reasons, just to, to quantify different tasks that they do, but not for load management the way that, that, that they're being used now. Um, but as I said, in conversations that I've had with other um, military organisations and, and, and other researchers, load management now is a, a consideration, partly because it's there's more science around how we can do it and there's more technology around being able to measure it. That's an interesting one for me because from what we know about the Army and, like you say, about the TV shows and the movies and as many push-ups as you can, run as far as you can, as fast as you can, that's surely got to be a quite a big shift for the for the guys that are involved in making the decisions of who does what to then take a more scientific approach and look think about load management rather than just beasting these guys and it almost been a mental test as well as a physical test but when you've got the numbers that completely changes yeah that's right and um and you've hit on a couple of things there so the physical test and the mental test um Often in, in that military setting, the, the physical quantities are unknown and they're more um, structured in many ways. And often the physicality of the training uh, that's been done is being done to see how people operate when they're, when they're completely stressed and when they're not comfortable. And you've got to learn to separate yourself from that and, and understanding, okay, at this point, the physicality of what we're seeing is to bring out some kind of mental characteristic as opposed to, you know, are we now trying to draw out the physical requirements of the job, which is a, which is a different thing altogether. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's a few different facets to that. Um, the other thing that you hit on was that shift in understanding of why we do it this particular way. And I think the, the time that I spent working for defence has actually helped me to work also with, uh, with other external organisations, so professional sport, for example, because while it isn't necessarily as much of a leap in a professional sport setting to uh, help them understand why you might want to introduce a new training method or a new testing method, ultimately what you've still got to do as a, as a, science, uh, as a scientist and researcher is help those people to understand the importance of what you're doing and you might need to you know, explain it to a head coach of a footy team or you know, a, a senior officer in the military. But either way, you've got to get that buy-in from them and figure out what makes them tick and, and what is going to make them uh, get on board with what you're trying to say. So either way, it's an education piece. And you know, as we you know, talk about translation of research, it, it's understanding how you can take the research that you're doing and translate that into 
a meaningful setting, whether that be a military setting or a professional sports setting. This isn't necessarily the way we're going to go with the conversation, but I think this really hits on a couple of points that are very topical at the minute. There's been a couple of jobs that have been advertised here in the UK that have got um, people on on social media um, having kittens and um, and losing their heads because of the uh, because of the salaries that are involved. And one of the conversation, the threads that I read was how we how we show our value and. Uh, ensure that them salaries, or try to ensure them salaries, are commensurate with the with the impact that we have. But clearly, the people involved don't either value that impact or don't even know what that impact is. So, I'd like to get your opinion on how you've gone about that in a, I suppose, a military and a sport setting to show the impact of a sports scientist or a biomechanist or you know other um, other practitioners and. Yeah, to, to, I suppose to come back to the to make sure that you're actually paid what you're should be paid, and people realise the impact that you can have that you're going to have. Yeah, yeah, that, that is a real can of worms, isn't it? Um, I'll, I'll start by going back actually to when I was a PhD student over in, in Perth, and um, you know, as we all do, you know, during those times, we have a number of different jobs and. One of the the jobs I had was working as a um, strength conditioning coach for the Western Australian Institute of Sport, which is a state um, government uh, sporting body. And at the time, they had the contract from the Australian Rugby Union to deliver the training to the uh, from about under fifteen to under seventeen junior academy players. Now, because rugby wasn't uh, a um, an Olympic sport at that time, it wasn't a sport that waste, which WA Institute of Sport, it wasn't a sport that waste service. So they looked to employ someone to do that for them. And I was fortunate enough to get that job. So it was a, it was a casual role, um, which I ended up doing for about two and a half years, I think. And uh, so I was employed by waste uh, and, you know, two to three times a, a week, I was coming in training these 15 to 17 year old academy kids as they started you know down this road of a very structured um, elite sporting program now on the back of that I was also um, perhaps foolishly still playing rugby union a a bit at Cottesloe Rugby and once I'd been there for about a year or two the head coach asked if I was willing to do some coaching for them some strength conditioning coaching for their senior players or their their A-grade players in the off-season and so I thought about it, look, I'm happy to do that. Um, but I did say, look, it will cost you. And I did up a, an in, or a quote for him and it wasn't, I didn't do it on the cheap. Um, it wasn't extremely expensive, but it was what I thought it, you know, it was worth. And he didn't even bat an eyelid at it. He said, yeah, look, that's fine. And then, you know, over the few years that I was there, I had another a couple of other clubs similarly approach me to, to do something um, the same. And each time I wrote them a quote, and no one at any point, and this was community rugby, did anyone argue the, what I was charging for for that. And then other clubs started doing the same thing and going to other coaches and they started doing it for free. And I actually said something to one of those coaches and said, you know, why are you doing it for free? It doesn't help anyone. Um, the clubs are happy to pay. They are paying. And it is how we, we value what we're doing. And 
you know, I guess they couldn't say it. They just wanted to get their foot in the door. And so I think how you, you get that value or how you get other people to appreciate that value is you've got to appreciate it for yourself and understand that you have spent time uh, studying, you have uh, spent time getting that experience, you probably have done some unpaid work at some point, but, you know, when it gets to the point where you're providing them a service uh, based on your experience and your knowledge, then you need to start asking people to, to pay for that. And if someone else doesn't, then that does devalue it. So often we're our own worst enemies in that uh, from that point of view is that we're too easy and, and too prepared to give it away just to get our foot in the door. Whereas if you stand on a bit of a united front and say, well, I'm not going to give it away just to get my foot in the door. If you want me in your door, you're going to have to you know, pay for me. Um, you know, so that's, you know, I guess the thing that, that, that we can do, uh, number one. But then your other uh, point to that was how do you show impact? And you've got to be clear about what you're trying to do. So like right in any program, whether S&C program or any kind of research proposal, you've got to understand what you want to try and get out of it. So if someone comes to you and says, look, this is the problem that I want you to solve, the first thing, and this is one of the skills that I learnt uh, really well working for defence, was breaking down what that problem was and trying to understand if I knew what they wanted and helping them to understand if that was actually going to help them. And so break it down, understand why are you asking that question, why are you asking that question, repeatedly hitting on that, then you can understand from their point of view what gap it is that they want you to fill. And once you understand what gap it is you want them to fill, then you have a chance of actually giving them a solution to the problem that they've come to you with. Whereas if you just immediately just go straight in and you do something and you haven't understood what, what they wanted, whether it be the, a defence person or, or um, sporting organisation, you just give them something and you almost second guess what they want, then they're not going to be happy and you're not going to have that impact. So, you know, that's the first tip I think is helping them to understand what gap they need filled because it may be different to the to what they initially ask you to do and then developing a really consistent program that's going to deliver that to them so that they walk away happy with what you've done and then they're going to value what you've done and get you back. So we'll come on to the the point that we were going to uh, probably cover later and that was the applied research side of things and this probably brings me on nicely with the with the asking the right questions and it'd be good to get your because more and more PhDs are in, being embedded in in pro sport for for obvious reasons but it'd be good to get your insight into that that process to ensure that the time that that person who's spending um, a lot of their time in pro sport is answering the questions that need to be answered but also working with the the people in the organization for you know to get ex, uh, manage expectations therefore is it a um, a question that's going to take one year to answer two years to answer etc cetera, etc cetera. and but kind of building that that puzzle um around that around that club and the questions that they want answering so how, how have you gone about doing that and embedding them them guys into clubs and making sure that they're Impact is real, I guess. Yeah, so I, I do some work with the South Sydney Rabbitohs. I know you had um, Jared Wade on a few weeks ago. And 
Those guys have been really good to work with and I've been working with them now for about three and a half years, so almost from um, from the same time that I started working at Macquarie. And when I first started working with Jared and at the time Paul Devlin as well, who's now moved on to another club, I suppose I, I was fortunate that both of those guys valued science and research and so you, you need that first of all. Um, if you've got somebody who doesn't value it at all, then it's going to be very hard sell to them so that was you know the plus for me that you know they both valued science and research and they wanted it and they were you know very keen and willing to listen to what I had to say Um, but then as I've you know said you know not too long ago you need to help them to understand where uh, where they can go because you don't want to you know the classic you know over promise and under deliver because then they're not happy with you and they're not going to get you back so one of the first meetings that I had with those guys, I went in with exactly what you just said before, some long-term goals, some medium and some short-term. And so I just did a you know, bit of a, of a um, injury um, lit search in rugby league and, and there wasn't a lot around um, or, or there wasn't a lot of um, opportunities that I saw beyond for, of preventable injury. So a lot of the injuries were you know, from contact and so forth, which is, you know, hard to, to, to mitigate, uh, unlike ACL injuries, which is the work that I've done previously. Um, but going to them with some, with, with a handful of potential research questions that can be delivered in the short term, uh, the long term and the medium term is, is quite beneficial because then from their point of view, they're going to get something with a pretty quick turnaround when they're answering to their bosses, their bosses can say, oh, well, we started, you know, this research project and we're already getting outcomes. And they might just be, you know, to the low-hanging fruit that you go for initially um, because, you know, from a pure scientist point of view, typically you're looking at, at longer-term questions. If it's an injury question, you, that needs a lot of time to, to get the data that you need to. If you want to do an intervention, that takes time. Um, so typically, you know, you want to set up longer-term projects. But... Uh, an applied organisation like a sports club um, or you know or, or a military, they want some some quick and easy wins. So you need to be smart about how you set up that research program. Um, and if you're setting up a, a PhD program, which is a long term project, and um, you know we'll, I guess we'll talk a bit more about that shortly, then that necessarily has to be a longer term investigation, so that the PhD student gets out of that a coherent research program that's been thought out and 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 run over that longer period but again if you're waiting till the end of that three years before you're giving something back to the club that's probably not going to be the best uh, for your relationship with that club so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Tim. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss a lot more on the inertial sensors side of things based on Daniel's uh, Daniel Glassbrook's PhD work uh, under Tim at the South Sydney Rabbitohs in the NRL. So that leads on to discussions about GPS and the potential gaps uh, that GPS could probably leave in terms of a, a full load monitoring package. 
Um, so really interesting chat around notional sensors. I think probably it's not something we've chatted about, uh, or I've chatted to any guests about previously. So this area of sports technology, which is uh, definitely advancing and um, is making its way into elite sport, is a really interesting area and something that I'm sure you'll love uh, to get Tim's opinion on. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're going to undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. Also sponsoring the Pacey Performance podcast today is Omega Wave. So Omega Wave is an, the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train for both the brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy levels and autonomic nervous system balance, it allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize training and then optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical practitioner to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. So this measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to their windows of trainability concept. So Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport, military and law enforcement agencies and are now the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So if you want to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, which is omegawave.com and on their social media channels. So let's have a little chat about Daniel's research in at Souths. Can you just, uh, kind of where that started and where that's, what's going to go and the kind of journey that you, well, you both uh, and the club plan for, for Daniel to go on? Yeah, so that's been a, a really good um, project to, you know, to, to have with those guys. So initially it started with, and that obviously there's, that's a longer term um, project because it's, you know, it's a, a PhD is three years. Um, but it started, the whole thing started with an, initially a meeting between um, Devs and I at a conference and, you know, we got, got chatting and, and when um, we first started saying, well, let's do some research in terms of some short-term wins, what I initially did was put some uh, postgraduate physio students into the, into the club and then they helped, you know, during pre-season. So from the club's point of view, they saw some, some research being done. They got some quick turnarounds and you build a bit of trust and then you're able to, you know, to broach with the club. Okay, well, how about we look at a PhD? And they had some ideas about where they wanted to go with the PhD project. 
um, and, and I had some ideas about where I wanted to go with it. But ultimately, it comes down to the student that you get on board. Um, while you might have particular questions in mind, uh, you've got to get the right student to answer the right questions. And so a number of years ago, we put an ad out um, and that's you know, partly supported by the club as well, which is great, uh, and, and partly uh, supported by a scholarship from the university. And so Daniel Glassbrook answered that ad and you know, we looked at what, what he had done in the past. He came from, from a good lab and um, over at AUT and you know, had a very uh, applied um, background uh, to himself. And what's also been really helpful is he's, he's had a really good personality and he's, and he's uh, worked in with the club really well. And you know, very early on, Devs and Jared was, you know, would tell me you know, how well he fits into the club because that's important that you know, they're happy to have someone there embedded in the club you know, a couple of times a week. So it helped to get the right person that could work with the other uh, coaching staff but also work well with the players. And from there, we, we looked at different uh, problem areas and you know, coming back to this load management, which we started talking about before, uh, you know, a lot of these things are you know, fortuitous um, relationships and, and meetings that you have. So around about that time, I um, had met Matt Clark, who was um, the, who's the, you know, one of the guys that's uh, behind the IMUs, IMSUs, and, and I met with him. And uh, at the time, you know, I, was, I was interested but also didn't have any sort of projects in mind to use these IMUs and then – you know, about a month later, it was turned around pretty quick. I had an opportunity to to buy some of these IMUs, and so I bought some of these IMUs. And between that and talking with Dan about where he wanted to take his PhD, and talking to the guys at the club about what was of interest to them, we came up with this idea of um, of load management or or load measuring load in the NRL because a lot of the work that is relied on in load management has come from uh, Australian rules football and I always say particularly in Australia the AFL have been instrumental in pushing sports science they've they've very early on taken a very systematic approach to how they look at their science programs and you know I, I think they have done a, a very good job of of helping to promote sports science and, and making it a real career and uh, and making it viable for a lot of people um and so for that reason, there is a lot of research out there around this load thing. And if you'd see, see me, you'd see me doing that in inverted commas and air quotes <laughs> um, because I, I think load for the AFL is very different to load for the NRL. And, you know, high-speed running may or may not be important. And, you know, one of the discussions we had early on with the club was, you know, while high-speed running is, is important for AFL, in an NRL setting, what it typically means is, if you've got a lot of high-speed running, it's because the opposition is getting past you and you're chasing them. And so we want to start to understand what load is important and, and what's it look like. And so with these IMUs, you know, I had this thought, you know, everything comes full circle. If you remember decades ago, um, you had these shoe pods that Nike used to, to bring out and you could basically add a hole in your shoe that you could put something in. And that's where I, you know, eventually would like to get to with these IMUs. But what we're doing is putting them as uh, as close to the to the foot as we can. So we have um, a number of different projects that we're doing with with, uh, with Souths and then also just some university um, students. 
as well, getting them to uh, play simulated games uh, during training and having IMUs on the bootlaces uh, and then taking that data into the lab and then getting uh, guys to simulate a game of rugby league in, in a lab. And I'm always cautioned in saying that we're not trying to predict loads in the same way that you can uh, measure loads in a lab, so ground reaction forces, for example. Um, there's a lot of people doing that, and they're doing that with, with pretty good success. Um, but there's also a lot of people that as they go down that road, they're, they're starting to realise that it may not be the best, um, I guess, the best use of, of this kind of data. And I think if we, if you want to know the ground reaction forces, if they're that important to you, then get someone in the lab and measure them. And instead what we're trying to do is get a, a surrogate measure for for some kind of internal loading, so some kind of mechanical loading, that's important and relevant. So again, that's not predicting ground reaction forces. We can instrument anything that, that we want to pretty much these days. And so trying to understand from a injury and performance perspective, what loads can we measure in the field that have some kind of lab validation and that's meaningful and is going to help the guys at, at Souths and, and, and anywhere else that uses in, this information to better manage their athletes. So loads of questions off the back of that. So having yeah. spoken to Matt, having spoken to Matt um, quite a lot, the one thing that's often um, often comes up is the difference between what you know GPS, which has become a um, a, kind of a staple for semi professional. Um, and upwards and also con- consumer now and uh, inertial sensors I know we're, we're probably and apologies for asking you to tell people how to um, suck eggs but would you be able to give us a bit of a, a, a layman's definition of, of what inertial sensors can collect and how that differs from what GPS can collect GPS as we know it yeah so um, so GPS as we know it is um, the position and largely, you know, what we use that for is measuring where someone is, how fast someone's moving, and the rate at which they're changing, so their acceleration. And so also, that's all about the position of the person. Um, with inertial sensors, mostly we're, we're looking at the accelerations of, the, of those um, segments that the IMUs, the, that the sensors are attached to, they also have, you know, for completeness, you know, magnetometers and gyroscopes in there, which tell us about orientation and the way that they're moving. But for the most part, we're interested in the accelerations that we can measure from these things. Um, so to go right back, the reason acceleration is important is, if you remember Newton's laws, force equals mass times acceleration. So the reason it's so interesting and of interest to people is that there, that there is some kind of relationship. It's pretty direct between acceleration and force. And to oversimplify it, if you're measuring someone's acceleration at the foot, for example, you're getting a pretty good indication of the force because the only thing missing for that equation is is mass. So again, force equals mass times acceleration. Um, Now, that's not to say acceleration equals force. As I said, I'm oversimplifying that. But that's why acceleration from these IMUs is in, is of interest to people because I think we can use it, 
to get a better indication of this mechanical loading. And so by mechanical loading, I mean if you're constantly impacting the ground as we do when we run, then you're getting some kind of loading. Now, in a, in a healthy person, that loading is, is good, it's useful, and it helps your, um, your biological uh, systems, bone, muscles, and so forth to, um, to adapt to the environment that you're putting it in, so running, for example. If you do too much of that, then the biological systems can't adapt to that, and that's when you start getting injuries. And similarly, if the loading isn't enough, then, um, you know, we all know, you know, it's a classic use it or lose it. So if you're not um, providing the correct stimulus, then you, you lose, you, you, you detrain. So it's getting that mechanical load just right, which is of importance. And so that accept, those accelerations that we can measure from IUs can hopefully give us a bit of an insight to quantify that so that we can more easily track and, and, and quantify it from a management point of view and an exercise prescription point of view. So given that explanation, is it just a general misunderstanding why people move towards trying to um, get ground reaction force into this situation? Um, I don't think it's a misunderstanding. It's, I guess in many ways, when you look at it from that very simplistic point of view that force equals mass times acceleration, uh, we can measure acceleration. We can get a pretty good measure of the mass of that segment. It's almost you think, well, it's so close. It's almost there. We should be able to do it. Uh, and and there are you know people that are that are predicting using um, machine learning methods to you know very high um, percentages. So you know you know ninety plus percent um, correct predictions of ground reaction forces, and even starting to predict. Um, joint moments, but it's still in a very controlled setting. It's you know based on lab uh, collected data. It's not taking into account different shoe surfaces, also different shoe composition, different um, ground, um, you know, grass hardness, and so forth. It's not taking into account a dynamic environment such as uh, a football game, you know, whichever code of football you like. And so I, I think it's. A case of it, it's it's there. We should be able to do it, and so people are, are, are trying to do that. Um, but I think, as I said earlier, people are starting to realise that perhaps we don't need to to go down that road a hundred percent to get the information that we need to make better this load management space that we're trying to understand. And so perhaps the efforts that are going into predicting ground reaction forces may be better into be put into coming up with a variable that is of use that doesn't have to be a ground reaction force. So in terms of the work that's going on with the IMUs at South with Daniel, can you just give a bit more information on, on what's been collected, why, and you know what, what problems that's trying to solve? I know you go into that in terms of the you know, GPS versus IMUs, but like from a day-to-day from -day point of view, yeah, so a couple of things that we're, that we're trying to do is, one, quantify if, if there are differences between different player groups. So if you take your hit up forwards, um, for example, do they have a particular pattern of, of loading during, uh, you know, inverted commas, a game situation? And so to do that, we've collected a, a bunch of data 
during training when they're um, when they're simulating games, and so they have a, a you know, contact sessions essentially, and so we have a number of players wearing these on their on their bootlaces, and we also take the GPS data so that you know that gives a bit of an idea of of um, where they are in the game, and so then taking the, that IMU data to see if we can break out characteristics of loading for those different player groups. So that's one thing that we're trying to do. Um, and, and we've collected that data and that, that data's been written up at the moment. Um, the other thing that we're trying to do is use that information and compare that against what we're doing in the, in the lab, which is the current project that, um, that, that Dan's collecting data for. And so we've taken GPS data to understand the general movements in a rugby league game. So how often are they walking, running, sprinting and so forth. So a lot of people would have seen that kind of work uh, in, in um, being published in rugby league and Aussie rules and many other games. So we're taking that to simulate uh, in a straight line fashion, so on a treadmill, those movement patterns. Obviously, it doesn't take into account side-to-side movement and contact, but just the, 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 the physiological um, strain largely should be the same. And we're getting them to do that on a force-instrumented treadmill. So this is a treadmill that can collect uh, force data the whole time that you're running. So it's got two force plates underneath the, the treadmill belt. And so that's our, our gold standard, if you like, the force readings from the treadmill and the motion analysis uh, system. And at the same time, we're collecting IMU data from a number of locations on the body. And so what we want to do is see, again, if we can get that relationship between known variables that relate to injury and or load, taken from a gold standard using those lab-based measures, and if we can then extract a variable from IMUs that could be worn in a field setting so that then in, we could say from these um, IMUs being worn by a rugby league player in a field setting, if we take this variable and you know, we might need to do some manipulation to it, we can say that, that has a relationship to a, a known variable of interest that we can measure in the lab. And so that's, that's the, the bigger project that we're trying to do or that we are doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. So when you mentioned about the characteristics of loading in that first uh, point that you made what what categories are they or what what characteristics are they could you explain that a little bit more for us um you know that, oh, that's still part of the unknown i guess okay. so initially what we what we want to do is understand the the foot ground interface a bit better um because with, with injury research it's always hard to well there's a couple of things it there's no one cause for an injury usually. It's, it's, it's just about always multifactorial. And so while you might be able to really easily measure uh, you know, a particular variable that has a relationship to injury, there's almost always a number of other variables that go into what actually caused that injury. Um, but for me, the missing piece is still this foot ground loading and that um, you know, we think logically it makes sense that it, it has a relationship to injury. And so that's what we're trying to get to at the moment is, is understand that foot ground interface um, by measuring it in the lab and having a field-based measure that we can use as well. And so we think, and this is what, you know, science is about, you've got to be prepared to 
to ask a question and, and not get an answer, but hopefully you do get an answer. But we think um, that this line of research will uh, lead us to having these field-based um, measures that we can take that relate to something of importance around that foot-ground interface loading. Another question off the back of that. So you, you were in the IMUs on the laces, is that right? Um, so some of the data we have is on the laces, uh, and then we also have some on the lower back and and up where the, the GPS is as well because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if we can get all the information that we need from, you know, a GPS unit as it's being worn today, uh, then there's no need to further instrument the person. So, um, you know, so for that reason, we've got one up there to, to simulate that and we'll, you know, we'll just see, you know, are we collect, already collecting all the data that we need or do we need accelerations from a different location of the body? Yes, the, the, the route I was going with that was why on the laces and not on the tibia where they normally be worn? Yeah, so that, that was purely a, um, a safety uh, decision. So um, certainly with the, the IMUs, uh, as in I measure U ones that, um, that, uh, that Matt, um, that you had Matt talking on, um, on to talk about earlier, the work that they've done with those is on the tibia and so a lot of their validation work has been around that daily load stimulus um, as measured at the tibia from these IMUs. But for a, a contact sport like rugby league, we just felt that it was too much of a safety risk to have this hard plastic thing directly on the tibia so that if they get a knock, they're likely to get some kind of you know hard tissue injury. Whereas on the, the laces, it's a bit more protected um, it, you know, it's, you know, you've got the, the boot leather between them, a, a sock, and it's just a bit more out of the way. So that was purely a pragmatic um, rationale for, for putting it onto the boot laces rather than the tibia. So in terms of buying from the rugby league guys to wear something else, what's that been like? Was that a challenge? Um, no, it's been um, quite good. And, and this is where, you know, I mentioned before, you know, Dan's relationship with the players uh, and and the other coaches has been really good because um, the approach from uh, from uh, Jared uh, was that you know, he can ask the players to you know, Dan can ask the players to do it, but the players you know have to be willing to do it. Plus, it was uh, you know it's got a, a research project that has ethics um, approvals with it, so they have to voluntarily um, consent to being part of of the project and. Because Dan has such a good relationship with the players, once he's explained to them, you know what what we're trying to do, um, you know they they have that trust with him, and so they're they're more than willing to um, to volunteer to be part of the study, and so it was you know from that point of view it was relatively easy, but because of the personal relationships that in particular Dan had with the players. Excellent. Well, we're approaching the forty-five minutes that I promised that I'd keep you to. Um, has anything come out? from Dan yet as part of that PhD? Um, a lot of it is on the cusp at the moment. So, you know, I don't want to you know, give too much away at the moment. <laughs> um, we've, uh, we've done a smaller symmetry study at the start of his PhD. Um, so looking at uh, different locations um, of, the, uh, of the sensor. So, um, you know, it doesn't make a difference if it's on the tibia, for example, or the, or the bootlaces and, what we determined from that was that if you've got it on the bootlaces, you can compare that to another measure that's on the bootlaces. 
um, but you can't compare that to a measure that you took from the tibia. So um, certainly if you are looking at, at this kind of data and you have um, have data from the bootlaces, then you don't want to compare that to the tibia. So that's uh, been um, presented at, at a conference. Um, we've just about, uh, we're going through the final proofs of a, of a meta-analysis, which has helped us to understand what kind of variables are of interest to rugby league from um, GPS and, and similar um, similar systems. But, yeah, a lot of the other stuff, uh, you know, is, is being um, presented in a couple of months at ISB in Canada and some manuscripts going through the revision process at the moment. So, unfortunately, I'll have to tell you just to watch your space. Yeah, no, absolutely. But if anyone does want, and I'm sure there will be people, because I haven't had anyone on um, so far discussing inertial sensors. Um, but if anyone wants to touch base and just kind of get a bit of a um, early release of, of what you guys have been doing and what you guys have found in the in the manuscripts that are going to come out, what's the best place for people to get in touch with you? Um, probably best to email me, which is tim.doyle at mq.edu.au if you just um, Google Tim Doyle Macquarie University it shouldn't be too hard to track down um, and you know I'm on Twitter as well which is TLA Doyle so pretty straightforward to uh, to remember I think Excellent, superb well look forward to um, some of the research that you guys have got coming out and obviously following up on uh, some of the discussion we've had today but thank you very much Tim really appreciate you coming on and sorry it's taken so long to uh, to line this up and make it happen no no worries at all thanks for uh, having me on really appreciate that you are reaching out and asking me to um, to contribute pleasure thanks Tim see you later thanks very much goodbye Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Thanks to Tim for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge and his experience of working through military, through elite sport and into academia, and also his views and experience on using inertial sensors, uh, the research process, um, embedding uh, research students into professional clubs and the, the potential pitfalls and experience he's got around that. So really appreciate Tim's time for coming on. Also big thanks to Fatigue Science, to Omega Wave, I Measure You and Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So I've got some really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, so make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will chat to you next week. <laughs>